All right, let's hear the word of the Lord. Psalm 117. Oh, praise the Lord, all ye nations. Praise him, all ye people. For his merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endureth forever. Praise ye the Lord. Amen. May God bless this rich psalm to us. Let us now pray for the preaching. Oh, our God, we come beseeching a blessing, a blessing upon the preaching of the word through your minister who now has to preach the word faithfully. Help him do so, Father, that the Spirit would help him preach this powerful, uh, short, and potent message in the 117th Psalm, that to the end of your praise, Father, the preaching of the word would find its mark in our hearts, that the unconverted would be converted to praise God, and those who have been sluggish to praise the Lord would praise him with fervency, knowing the mercies of God, and that we as a church would not be sluggish in turning to the world and proclaiming the mercies of God, that the whole earth would be filled with the praise of God Almighty. Only this Holy Spirit can do this powerful work. And so we pray for his work upon our assembly now. Lift our thoughts to heaven. Help us to better praise God through the preaching of the word. And so we ask and pray to these ends that thou wouldst glorify thy son, Jesus, that thy son may glorify thee. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are two motives for missions. Two motives for missions. One is for the salvation of sinners that are perishing and going to hell. And tonight I will preach on the doctrine of hell in view of that. For as Paul said, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 11. But the other motivation is this, that we would see the Lord praised. This is the other great motivation and perhaps is the primary motivation for missions. As one minister has said, missions exists because worship does not. And this is one of the prime uh, uh, motivations for missions. And that is actually the theme of the 117th Psalm with its missionary view, which is that all the world, every nation, every tribe, every person might praise the Lord. And if we forget these two great motives, we will not support missions, friends. If we don't know these two motives, we will not have any interest in the missionary endeavor. The Christian cares for the spread of the gospel because why? They care about the glory of God. They care that God would be praised. They want to see atheism and Allah and Buddha and Krishna put away throughout the ends of the earth. They desire to see Jesus Christ raised up as a banner for all nations. And they want to see his name praised in every place that right now has a mosque and a synagogue. They want Jesus Christ to be the refuge of the nations for sinners of all kinds to find praise in him. The Christian supports missions to see the name of Jesus Christ high and lifted up. You know, as Reformed Presbyterians, we have a great care for worship, don't we? Uh, we have a care for its purity. We, we do all things according to the word of God, or we seek to. 
the same heart should it not drive us to missions. If we have a care for the worship of God here, we ought to care that God is worshipped everywhere. The same heart that says God must be worshipped in spirit and in truth will send the gospel to the ends of the earth that God may be worshipped in spirit and truth wherever men gather. The lament of our heart then ought to be what we considered months ago in Psalm 107, verse 31. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the sons or children of men. That's our lament as the children of God, that all men would praise the Lord for his goodness. And that thought must enter our heart as we consider missions. And we, if we have a care for missions, then what this psalm is also going to teach us is that we must do it according to the book. This book, if we have a care for the glory of God, that men would be praised in the way that God wants to be praised, but also that we would seek to win men to Christ through the means that God has given us. You see, if, if we make uh, missions about purely the creature, we will be uh, tempted to turn away from God's ways when we go out in the missionary endeavor. And if we forget that missions is about saving men as well from hell, we will have no compassion for missions either. So these two things have to be held together. It's not one or the other, it's both. So, that all men would praise him. Our theme today out of the 117th Psalm is the calling of the Gentiles to praise Christ. The calling of the Gentiles to praise Christ. And we'll consider it under three heads this morning. First is the message, second the mercy, and third is the means. So first, the message. Let's consider some contextual matters for the psalm, what we may know of it. Uh, as far as human authorship, its human authorship is not known to us. However, what do we know, boys and girls, when we don't know the human author? We know anyway that the Holy Spirit is the author of, these, uh, of this psalm, as well as all the rest of Scripture. And that's ultimately what matters, that this is a divine word from God, divinely inspired praise. It is something else you have probably taken note. It is the shortest psalm of them all. It is actually the shortest chapter in the Bible. And because of that, your temptation might be to dismiss it as perhaps not particularly important. Uh, in fact, in some churches, they only will use the psalm as a kind of doxology at the end of a service to sort of use this psalm uh, because it's almost like they see it less than, and I'm not imputing any ill motives if you do this kind of thing, but almost like it is less than a psalm, like it's only to be used as a, a doxology. But we must never treat it that way because it is a very profound psalm. In fact, God has designed this psalm to be short for a particular purpose because it has advantages in being short. You can easily, boys and girls, memorize it. It's two verses. You can easily memorize this psalm, and you can call on its truths readily when your mind and your heart need it. It makes it very easy to sing this psalm at the drop of a hat when you have need of it. Now, all Scripture is important. We need all the counsel of God. But what you often find in the Scriptures, matters of first importance are often in these very short portions of scripture, aren't they? Because God knows our frame 
And he knows that we need truths that are easy to memorize and digest. Think of the Shema after all in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. It's meant to be memorized and kept close to the heart. It is meant to be recited often. And in few words, it says if you actually meditate on it, much about the doctrine of God. You know that Jehovah is the Lord our God, our covenant God. He is ours. He is the only God. He is one. He is uh, one God being three, being one. There is no other God, and so on and so forth. If you meditate on the truth of the Shema, you have much to think about. Or think about as well, boys and girls, what the New Testament calls trustworthy sayings. Notice how short they are, and yet they are memorable. What is 1 Timothy 1.15, which we often remember? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. This trustworthy saying is meant to be memorized. It is meant to be kept close to our heart such that you know that even if you are the chief of sinners by faith in Christ, a Christ who came to save such as you, you can be saved. That short verse, assurance of salvation and a gospel promise to all sinners will flee to him. That is why it is short. Short scriptures often have profound truths. And Psalm 117 is no different. Its theme is tremendous. The calling of the Gentiles into the praise of God. It calls all people into the praise of God. None are excluded. Not a single nation or tribe. And this is clear from its first verse, which is cited by the Apostle Paul in the 15th chapter of Romans. It's 11th verse. He cites it this way, Praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and laud him, all ye people. So what you have before you is is a psalm whose theme is literally as large as the entire world, summed up in two verses. And in case you're tempted to miss its theme, Romans 15 cements its theme for us, showing you how to interpret it. And as the theme is global missions, The wider context of the psalm is astonishing if you remember where we are in the Psalter. You remember Psalms 113 to Psalm 118 are the great Egyptian Hallel Psalms, don't you? Um, When were they sung, boys and girls, do you remember? During the Passover, right? During the Passover. They celebrate God's deliverance of his people in the Exodus, drawing them out of Egypt. And yet, you might think something curious here as you think on the Hebrews. Nestled inside of them is this curious psalm in which the Lord tells his ancient people to praise him by calling the Gentiles in. Isn't that astonishing? Well, what do you observe from that? First, that God has always planned that the Gentiles would come in. Even as we think on the Exodus, we remember that it pointed to the greater Exodus. This is contrary to any theology that teaches the church as an afterthought. It has always been the church in God's eyes. There is one church of both Jew and Gentile. For Christ is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Ephesians 2.14. Who is he speaking of? Jew and Gentile. He's broken in Christ any partition between the people of God. And as we know, as I've already alluded to, how these Hallel Psalms are to be handled. You remember Jesus and his disciples sang them 
on the night in which he was betrayed, that last Passover, the first Lord's Supper. And you remember that the Exodus it speaks of, that all these Psalms speak of, is given greater light by the cross. At the transfiguration, we heard very recently that Jesus came to accomplish his greater Exodus, his decease, as it is in the text. An Exodus from our bondage to sin and to Satan. And so, what do we do when we sing Psalm 117? We see greater gospel light. And instead of just seeing a a, a psalm for a quaint people of old, we see the Great Commission itself. That's what's in view here. And so our second observation, we who have received the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ, so you think on the Passover, you think of the Lord's Supper, we who have received the salvation of the Lord in Jesus Christ are meant to have our own joy of being saved from God's wrath spill over, isn't it? And it is meant to, in our praise and our joy of being saved, to call others into salvation. Not content that we ourselves are saved. After all, the second verse says that we have received the merciful kindness, which is great, of the Lord to us. We are not content with that. We want others to come in. We want others to come in, and this is where our heart must be. We must never be satisfied that we are saved in a sense. We are to call others to come in. And what is God's design in that? Almost a cascading effect, isn't it? When we call others in, they come in. They call others in. And soon the knowledge of the glory of the Lord spreads across the earth, even as the the waters cover the seas. This is God's design even in his own praise, that we who are saved call others into the praise of God. And will Jesus Christ not be greatly glorified through the earth when this happens? Is that not meant to be our joy? You see, our joy is connected here to the ends of the earth praising Christ. When we see every nation, tribe, and tongue praise our beloved Christ, we rejoice or we ought to. And the fact that we don't shows that there is something wrong with us. If we will not have a hearty Desire that everyone would praise Christ because the Christian, the child of God, yearns to see more and more glorify the name of their own Redeemer who, has, who is worthy. It's a convicting thing that we often have no care for this motivation for missions. If we did care about the glory and praise of Christ, how we would be earnest for missions, friends. Well, that background to the psalm, let's consider its text. Its first verse establishes the scope of its message. Oh, praise the Lord, all ye nations. Praise him, all ye people. What is its scope? Simple question. All nations, all people. Are any excluded? No. Every nation, every people are called to praise the Lord, which is hallelujah in Hebrew, and a second praise him, all ye people. Now, praise him and praise the Lord or hallelujah are both imperatives. I think if you have maybe the New King James, it uses an exclamation mark to show you it's a command. This is the Lord's commandment to all people. Praise him. Praise me, he says. I am to be praised. Now, I'm very aware that some on hearing that will sort of 
roll their eyes and praise God blasphemy, uh, through blasphemy of a kind of narcissism. What kind of being would command men to praise him or perish? This God is a narcissist. Well, friend, if you ask this kind of thing or say such a thing, that is a rather foolish thing to say or ask because by definition, this is God and he is worthy. He is worthy of praise. And we can consider many reasons why. But first of all, he made you. He made you. In him, we live and move and have our being. There's not a breath that you and I can take that is not uh, required to come from God. Uh, During COVID, so many found themselves on a ventilator and they understood for the first time, perhaps, that they are not God. God is worthy to be praised. He is your source and he is your sustainer. All that you enjoy in this world is because of him. Every good gift comes from him, from above. And above that, you know, those are the benefits and and those are the reasons that the creature selfishly must sometimes praise the Lord. He's worthy of all those things. But more than that, he is praiseworthy because of his own glory and his own majesty. Even if he gives nothing to us. Even if he had not given you life, he is worthy of praise. Psalm 104 reminds us, Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, why? Thou art very great. Thou art clothed with honor and majesty. This is God. Clothed with honor and majesty, very great. A meditation on God who is holiness and light, who is love who is full of pity to sinners, who is just and terrible, almighty in his power, and so on and so forth, would cause us to bless the Lord because he is worthy of it. And so this call to praise God is not the call of a narcissist. Instead, it is the call of a God who is worthy. And in fact, you would find your blessing, he says, if you would praise me. And as we think, on the majesty of God, how our praise is deepened. To think of such a high and majestic and exalted God who would come down to die on a Roman cross in the place of sinners. Narcissist, I think not. This is a God worthy of being exalted, demonstrating his love for all nations and all peoples. Is such a God not worthy of being praised? And is it, is it wrong for such a being to call all the nations to praise him? No. In fact, it would be a great and terrible sin to not praise and bless such a God. Friends, you have probably raised a toast to a mere man who gave you a good job. Is God not worthy of praise? Psalm 18.3 says, I will call upon the Lord who is what? Worthy to be praised. He is worthy of praise. And maybe, child of God, you have forgotten such things yourself. Remember who God is and praise him always. Now, as we look at this verse, you might think that nations and people here are redundant, as though they're the same thing. Or maybe it's a slight variance of kind of poetic device for repetition. It's not. 
Uh, The Hebrew word for people can be translated tribe or kindreds. Uh, What is a tribe? Well, it's a smaller division inside of every nation. Right? For instance, in our nation, we still find, and in fact, in some ways in a heightened way, because our nation is often a nation of immigrants, we find tribal identities, don't we? We speak of Latinos, we speak of African Americans, Caucasians, Native Americans, and so on and so forth. And each of these groups, as you know, can be further divided. Um, but the same goes for all the nations. You think of India, you think of Russia, you think of Somalia and all the places on the earth. Nations which consist of tribes of people. And what the Lord is showing is that every unit, every unit of peoples is called to praise him. The nation is called to praise him and every constituent people group in a nation is called to praise him. And when you translate it this way, you might translate it, Oh, praise the Lord, all ye nations, praise him, all ye kindreds, or tribes, or something like that. Well, you might recognize that then in the Revelation, don't you? After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds, there it is, tribes, and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb, Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. So you can see the connection here between Psalm 117 and what will be in heaven. Every nation, tribe, people, and tongues standing before God, praising the Lamb for His salvation. All kinds of people will praise Him. This is the vast scope of the gospel praise going forth. You know, in some ways, our church is very, very diverse. I praise God for that. But it is absolutely nothing compared to what heaven will be like. Absolutely nothing. You will see peoples of every kind. The Lord made every nation, tribe, and tongue. And he will bring all of them to praise him together. In this, you need to understand, child of God, in this time of great confusion and division in society, what is the great unifying factor for the human race for all eternity. It is Jesus Christ, Son of God. This is the unifying factor for all humans. All peoples will praise God in Him. The unifying factor will never be the United Nations. Now, we have had decades to see how that experiment has gone wrong. That is not where our hope is. Our hope is that all peoples will praise Christ as one, one people. The healing of the nations will come through Jesus. Peace on earth comes in him. Racial tensions, they go away in him. When we, sanctified, see one another as brother and sister, all saved by the very same blood, the blood of Jesus Christ. And so... Christ unifies the nations and he calls all nations to praise him. And it is through this psalm, in fact, that the Apostle Paul in Romans 15 calls the nations to Christ. If you want to turn to Romans 15, the ninth verse, it is helpful to see how the psalm is used in this great chapter of our Bible. Romans 15, the ninth verse, I'll begin reading here. And think on these wondrous words. 
And that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. For this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. And again he saith, rejoice ye Gentiles with his people. And here is Psalm 117. And again, praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and laud him, all ye people. The scope here of the gospel then is to all Gentiles, to all peoples. And he proclaims that the gospel must go to all nations so that they would trust in the son of David, Jesus Christ. And that they would glorify God for what? His mercy. Uh, Verse 12 says, and again, Isaiah saith, there shall be a root of Jesse, speaking of Christ. And he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, and in him shall the Gentiles trust. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. Psalm 117 is fulfilled, beloved, in Jesus Christ, the root of Jesse, that arose to reign over the Gentiles, and in whom the Gentiles will trust just as prophesied in the Old Testament. Where will the unity of all nations and all peoples come from? I ask again, Jesus Christ reigning over us all. Ephesians 4 says, There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. This is where the unity of the nations will be found one day. And so the calling of the Gentiles is the central message of this psalm. But they cannot come For they are sinners, unless we also see that the second verse of the psalm contains a message of mercy to bring them in. So we'll consider that in our second head. Verse 2, for his merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endureth forever. So if the call to the Gentiles is for them to praise the Lord, worthy to be praised, What is it that he says we ought to tell the nations and tribes about him? There are two things in this precious verse. First is, his merciful kindness is great toward us. Something we ought never forget. But second, his truth endures forever. Now I said, sometimes the shortest fragments or phrases or verses in the scripture are some of the most profound. And this is the case here with the second verse as well. These are extraordinary meditations. These are tremendous um, reasons for entering his praise. And we ourselves must be gripped by them before we go into the mission field if, uh, or send or pray for others to go. First, let's consider his merciful kindness is great. Now, in the Hebrew language, you might know that merciful kindness here is hased which is sometimes translated loving kindness or steadfast love. What we recognize in this psalm, even as God's people, is that we are sinners. We are sinners and we deserve God's enmity and his wrath. He is just. And what is our sin? It is lawlessness. Our sin strikes at God's holiness. Our sin is rebellion against him. It is grotesque. Our sin is anti-God, this most blessed being. It is everything he stands, it is against everything he stands for. 
It is completely against the glory and honor of God. It is rebellion. It is cosmic treason. And we cannot pull any punches. Yet, we praise him because his merciful kindness is great toward us. That though we are sinners, we have found mercy. Though we are great sinners, we have found great mercy in him. In wrath, he has remembered mercy. What did Romans 15 verse 9 that we read just a moment ago say? That the Gentiles might glorify God for what? His mercy. If we ever forget the mercy of God to sinners, really woe unto us. How dare us? How dare we do such a thing, first of all, that we would ever forget his mercy? Have you forgotten his mercy to you, sinner? We cannot, we must not. We must remember that in wrath he has remembered mercy. We must remember that the beauty of our God is as a holy God, he is also a God of mercy. Hebrews 8, 12, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. How great is his merciful kindness to us who are in Christ. He is also a God then of mercy to both Jew and Gentile. No group of people on the earth is excluded from it. We say to all, yes, his merciful kindness is great unto us. Come into that mercy. Come into that kindness. All ends of the earth, turn unto the Lord and receive it. Whatever your tribe, whatever your tongue, Jesus is for you and for you all. There is no exclusion. You simply come to him, you receive him by faith, and he is yours. And this text has such blessedness to it. It says his merciful kindness is great. Now, as great sinners, his mercy is greater than our sin. And we praise God for that. And never forget that, child of God. As great as your sin is, his, sin, his, gra- uh, his grace to cover sin is greater. However, what great in this text signifies is a little different than that. It signifies that his mercy is um, mighty or it is prevailing. It prevails over us. It, It is prevailing mercies. It has conquered our sin and it has also conquered us. Something no one else can do. God has done in Jesus Christ. Surely, beloved, you say, God has conquered me out of his mercy and his love. He is a king that conquers the heart. This is our Lord Jesus. You know, some will say something like this, I was dragged kicking and screaming into salvation. That is absolutely false. If you are the Lord's, he has turned your heart so that you desire him. When you were born again, he gave you new affections and a new heart so that you became willing in the day of his power as the scripture says, and you saw him as the most glorious and wonderful savior and you fled to him. His grace, his mercy prevailed over the hardness of your heart. The hardness of your heart and mine too is the most incorrigible and the worst and the hardest material and substance in the universe. Only his mercy can prevail over it and mercy we have received. You who once hated him, now... His loving kindness prevails over you. You give your heart to him willingly. 
And this is why we praise God. He has prevailed over my heart and praise bursts out of the heart, doesn't it? This is what we see when we see our state of salvation and this great God who has done such wondrous things for us. We praise him. Once you had, and I had no desire to praise him if you remember your conversion. But when the gospel transforms your heart, he puts a new song in our heart, in our mouth, even praise unto our God, as the psalm says. And so without the gospel, as we think on this merciful kindness, men will not praise God. You go and you do missions without the gospel, you will not accomplish a thing. If you do not call men to faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ, missions will fail. You remember maybe in the 19th century, there was always the great clash between the high churchmen and the Calvinist evangelicals. The high churchmen wanted merely to go and create civilization in the unreached parts of the world. They wanted to say, they say, give the heathen civilization, then we can give them the gospel. But the Calvinist evangelicals said, no, we give them the gospel. The Lord turns their heart and then, quote unquote, civilization comes as a secondary or tertiary byproduct. But even in that, what is often neglected is we send the gospel so that the heathen will praise God. Not just be saved, but praise the Lord for his mercies. So that's the first reason, his victorious loving kindness. The second reason, we praise God. We call all heathens to praise God because his truth is eternal and everlasting. This goes to the nature of the scripture itself. Jesus Christ said, what, boys and girls? Thy word is truth. Truth. This means the scripture, as he said, cannot be broken. There are no contradictions in it. And it also means that the scripture, the word of God, is not for an old, ancient, bygone society and time. It is for all peoples, for all times, because this is the truth of God. No matter how advanced a nation believes it is, no matter how far a people think they have, quote unquote, evolved past God, the truth of God endures forever and ever, and it will prevail. And when a nation, this is the thing, right? When a nation actually thinks that it is too advanced for the truth of God, it loses truth itself, right? Jesus said, thy word is truth. Just think about it. Just look at the judgment the Lord has brought on our nation. We say that the truth of God doesn't matter. We are so advanced, supposedly. What has happened? Well, our scientist now staggeringly says that a biological male can be a female. This is the absurdity. It's plainly, let's just say that, this is plainly absurd. But when you deny the truth of God's word, you will deny truth itself. And professing to be wise, you will be counted a fool. Our supposedly advanced society, which is advanced beyond the truth of God, supposedly says that you have come out of goo and were not created, but evolved out of sludge and slime. That all this around us just happened. Knowing the absurdity of that, we have heaped more absurdities. And now we talk about things like multiverses, right? We know there's a problem. What's the origin of the universe? Let's just kick that can down the road and create an infinite number of universes. How scientific is that? No proof whatsoever. 
Just to avoid what? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. But as we find ourselves on the wrong side of society so often, the blessedness of the psalm is its promise. His truth endures forever. It will never be lost, nor will it ever be defeated. Especially because, as we have considered it, the ruler of the nations, Jesus Christ, is what? Truth incarnate. I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me, he said. He is truth incarnate. And if this psalm is all about King Jesus, he will smite every nation that rejects truth. This is something the psalm tells the Gentiles is praiseworthy. And brethren, this is praiseworthy that we possess the truth. This is a matter of praise that God has given us truth. Is that not praiseworthy? It settles us, doesn't it? It grounds us. It tells us that we have nothing to fear because we have the truth itself. We're not groping around in the dark. We have the very light of the word of God. For which we ought to say, hallelujah. This kind of certainty, by the way, as you well know, is not seen as virtue today. Right? What is today's virtue? Doubting. Doubting is virtue. But uh, I think our society is perhaps maybe blind to it for now, but we'll certainly come to the realization, who wants to live like that in doubt constantly? Do you really? Do you really want to doubt everything? Do you want to doubt anything is true? You know, some, I'm well aware, will charge you and I with arrogance when we talk about truth and that we have the truth. But boys and girls, that's a sleight of hand. That's a move that is from the twisted one himself. Is it arrogance at all when we base our lives on God's truth? No, arrogance is actually creating your own truth. Arrogance is actually creating your own ideas about God. How arrogant is the man who will say, well, I think God is like this, or God would never do this, or God would only do that kind of thing. That is arrogance. Who are you or I to define the Almighty that way? He defines himself. This kind of certainty, a truth based on the scripture, is humility. He also defines us, by the way, which is also humbling. Friends, just think about it. Uh, How arrogant are we when we say that the truth of God is that I am a great sinner and I deserve hell. And I preach that to you out of the word of God. Is that arrogance? No, that's humility. Is the truth of God not that he is high and exalted above us and I must live life in submission to him. Is that arrogance? No, that is humility. If the truth of God is that uh, through the word of God, he shows forth his son to all sinners that they may graciously enter into salvation and praise him and bless him. No matter how great a sinner they are, they can be saved. What kind of arrogance is that? That's humility, friends. In fact, that's compassion. Friends, if I say, not I think, but thus saith the Lord, sinful man recoils at that. When I say, thus saith the Lord out of the word, yet that is humility. Because I'm not saying I say, I'm saying God says. 
And I have to be faithful to whatever he says, even when it comes at a cost. That said, dealing with that charge, we praise God that he has given us the truth to have. And that truth, the Bible says, is everlasting. In this, you have to understand, truth never changes. It never changes for society. Nations and tribes are to adapt to the truth, or they will be destroyed by falsehood. See, this is the call to the Gentiles. You need to change and conform to the truth. We don't change the truth of God's word to adapt to nations and societies. They adapt or they will be destroyed by falsehood. You know, our day, our present flirtation with postmodernism, what's the question? It's the question that Pontius Pilate asked Jesus, right? Standing there, truth incarnate, he asks, what is truth? That's essentially seen as a virtue. But friends, that will lead you to despair. Just think, this is just an example for today. Think of all the children today who are having their genitals mutilated and destroyed for the sake of falsehood. Where will they be in a decade? There is going to be such sorrow in this nation because we have chased falsehood over the truth. And the church has to be ready, first of all, to hold fast to the truth and then minister the truth to these hurting souls when they have need of it. But this is what chasing lies will do to a people. And we praise the Lord and we call the Gentiles to praise God because we have the truth of God's word. And what you will see, friends, is that Jesus Christ says what? The truth will set you free. It is truth that sets you free. It is not the lie. It is not falsehood. Um, What is it said of the devil? He is a liar from the beginning and the truth is not in him. The lie is of the devil. Truth is not in him. But we praise God that we call the Gentiles to say, this is the truth. This is God's word and you may enter into it. You think about how uh, the truth of the Lord has endured, and this is just for your encouragement. Uh, Try to be mindful of time, but how many regimes and how many religions have sought to destroy the truth of God's word? And yet, where are they? They're all gone. Where is Baal? No one worships him. Where is Zeus? No one worships him either. Where are the Roman Caesars? No one worships them. The Soviet Union made a mockery or tried to make a mockery of believing in God. You remember one of their cosmonauts, uh, German Tidov. He made the ridiculous claim that when he went into space, he saw neither God nor angels. And this is supposed to be the proof that there is no God. And this was the propaganda given to the world. The Soviet Union has the truth. Where is the Soviet Union now? Gone. Where is the truth of God's word being preached here in every place where there is a Bible? And we praise God for that. By the way, that man died of cardiac arrest in his 60s, and now he knows the terror of the Lord. The truth of God endures. Well, in that, a call to the Gentiles to enter the praise of Jehovah means something else. His exclusivity. The truth is exclusive. And so this call to the Gentiles is put away your gods. Nations and tribes are called to put away their idols and to praise Jehovah. There is an exclusivity to his praise, right? Isaiah 45, 5. I am the Lord and there is none else. There is no God beside me. This goes part and parcel of the gospel message. That you cannot praise Jehovah and deny him. 
by uh, praising idols at the same time. The nations are to be discipled with this very truth of God. There is no other. Now, there is a blessed side effect. Not really a side effect. There is a blessed aim, isn't there, if you know your Bible, to the calling in of the Gentiles. And what is that? Something remarkable will happen. The blindness of the Jews will be removed. Romans 11.25 For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until what? The fullness of the Gentiles be come in. See, when you, well, let me, before I, I, I preach on that, also listen to Romans 11.30 and 31. For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief, even so have these also now not believed that through what? Your mercy, they also may obtain mercy. Isn't that verse 2 of Psalm 117? For his merciful kindness is great toward us. We proclaim the mercy of God to Gentile and Jew. And Paul says that through our mercy, they may obtain mercy. And I think what is so beautiful about this psalm then is you see its circular nature, isn't it? That first the Jews call the Gentiles to enter into the praise of God. And then as they have been blinded for a time, that the nations might receive mercy. We take that very message back to them so that one day there will be one people of God, Jew and Gentile, praising God out of the very same text, proclaiming to all the nations that there is one God, His Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit that indwells His people, calling all nations to praise Him. It's a beautiful circuit that this psalm will make one day And we sing it in anticipation that as the Gentiles come in, that they will proclaim this to the Jews and the Jews will join us. Having sung this psalm even today in their synagogues, yet being blind to Christ in it, one day they will see how blind they were that they were singing all the time of Jesus. And that's why as the apostle pondered these things in the 11th chapter of Romans, All he could say is this, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Remarkable. Well, having considered the mercy of the Lord in Jesus, let's conclude with the means, and I'll try to be brief here. So how will the fullness of the Gentiles come in? How will all nations and tribes come to praise the Lord? We know it will happen, That is not the question. For even in the Psalm of the Cross, Psalm 22, which began with, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And this was in the mind of the Savior on the cross. We know it climaxes with, All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord, and all the kindreds of the nations shall what? Worship before thee. This is the aim of the cross. Jesus saw that all nations would turn unto him and worship him by his work there. But what is the means by which this great thing which he has purchased will come to pass? Last week, beautifully fitting, in Luke chapter 10, it is through the sending of the gospel through gospel laborers. So this psalm, so small, carries with it the great commission. Matthew 28, 19. Go ye therefore and teach all what? Nations. 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. You see, this is a psalm for the Great Commission, isn't it? It's a psalm by which we remember that all nations are to come and call on the name of the Lord. And so in some way, when we sing this psalm, we ought to sing it with a small, at least a small sense of pain. That though we call all nations, not all nations presently are praising him. Though we call every tribe and every people, not all peoples are praising him. Not, not all, anyway, do. There are many places on earth with zero gospel witnesses. There are many people on the earth that have never praised the Lord. Is it a staggering thing to you, child of God, that there are places on this earth where hallelujah has never come from heart to tongue? This is, and it ought to be a matter of pain to the believer, if they know Jesus, if they know God, that there are places on this earth so dark that hallelujah has never been uttered. To know that Jesus has not been worshipped in a place should move us. And what is the remedy? It's what we call missions. Missions. Uh, Our greatest need, as we have considered it in this past two weeks, is laborers, for they are very few. And if you think that there are few available for the mission to North America, so many empty pulpits in our land and so many pulpits by which the gospel is not preached at all, how severe is this problem throughout the earth? How few are there globally, brethren? So we need to pray for gospel laborers to go out into the world. When was the last time you did it? When was the last time you prayed that all the ends of the earth would come to know the Lord, that they would praise him? I have been greatly and deeply convicted of this myself. And we ought to equip the church then to be able to go out now, I've been, this is a simple matter, perhaps, but I've been deeply convicted of this myself. You know, with, with our children, as we raise them, we ought to consider teaching them foreign languages, shouldn't we? So that it would be easier for them to converse and to communicate the gospel. You know, part of the problem with the education system in America is that it neglects foreign languages, thinking there's one language in the whole world. And we have even lost the classical languages like Latin and Greek, which would make it easier to learn many of the languages in the world. The, the joke by one of my professors, and the sad and sorry joke, was that um, when uh, students of the ministry used to come in a century ago, they would come in knowing Latin and Greek. And he said, sadly, now we have to teach you English when you come in, because you don't even know basic English grammar, and I'm not immune to that as well. And that leads to another need, and this is really the predominant need, which is the translation of the scriptures into all the languages of the peoples. So few peoples have the scripture in their native tongue. How else will they call on God? You know, we are blessed to have a myriad number of copies of the scripture in English. Even inside this pulpit, there's another copy of the Bible. But how many Gentiles do not have a copy of God's word in their own language? Too many. Too many. You know, we say we are reformed. What was one of the joys of the Reformation? That God's people could for the first time in a long time have the scriptures in their own language. Do you know how many of our people wept at being able to have God's word? This is God speaking to me. And it had always come through some other man. Maybe a man goes as a missionary and has to be interpreted and they get the word of God that way. But here it is now, 
right? It used to be in Latin and some priest would have to probably butcher it and give it to you. But here I have it now. God speaking to me. I know what God is saying and all of God's word. This is a joy to the child of God. And so few of the peoples of the earth have a copy of the scripture in their own language. Tears have been shed. Blood has been shed too. Let's we forget that. But as we consider the need for the nations to praise God, uh, we also have to be concerned with another need, which is Psalter translation. We have to translate the psalm book. We don't need to write new praise songs for the nations. God has given them to us. And if we are to translate the psalms in singable form, we need to do that for every nation and every tribe and tongue. It's a songbook, really, that will unify the nations in praise. Every culture, every nation on the earth will sing with one voice as one people of God to King Jesus. This is going to be the joy one day when the Jews come in singing the psalms as a new song, having sung them for millennia and most of them refusing to see Christ in them. So keep missions and evangelism in your prayers to the aim that God would be praised especially among unreached people groups. As I mentioned on Slack, I will likely be praying monthly for and giving to you a new people group that's unreached for the gospel or the word of God so that we may lift them up in prayer that the Lord might send send men to preach the word to them. That we as a church as well would learn to look beyond ourselves. This is something, especially as we consider last week, that American churches are are woeful at. It's as if nothing exists. There are no needs outside of our walls. That there is no one perishing out there in this world. We must die to self. It's a sanctifying thing, brethren, to think on the lost in every nation. It really will drive you to your knees and it will cause you, if you know the merciful kindness of the Lord, what would that cause you to do yourself? To praise him that billions don't know him, and yet, out of his grace and mercy, you do. You do. We'll consider that on the doctrine of hell tonight. But if any of you have yet to enter the praise of God, you have heard that he is worthy of it. Revelation 4.11, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. You were created for his pleasure, Therefore, you must worship him who made you, who gave you life. And you and I have rebelled against the Lord who gave us life and health. And that is a sin. He is worthy of our praise. And he extends himself to you to cover even your sin of not praising him. What an astonishing thing that is, that there is mercy for even that sin. Great is his merciful kindness toward us. I pray that God would prevail over your hard heart if you don't know him, that you may praise him from the heart. Friend, if you would come to him, he will freely and fully forgive every trespass. Friend, and your soul will ache for him, that he would be God your father, and you would know Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, As your beloved, my beloved is mine and I am his, this Jesus most precious of all. And he will put a new song in your mouth, even praise unto our God. So as time is up, here is the psalm, two short verses. And yet, 
you have seen great things in it. Designed by the Lord to keep the Great Commission in your praises, easy to memorize, boys and girls, go memorize it. Learn to sing it. For it concludes with praise ye the Lord, again in Hebrew, hallelujah, which is a call to all of us. Come and praise Jah. Come and praise Jehovah with us. May you and I long to see Christ glorified and praised among all the peoples by keeping this precious psalm in our hearts. Amen. Let us arise for prayer, if able.